Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio, and I want to talk now about the state of the New Zealand media industry. Not necessarily its content, but its financial status. The two are quite possibly related. Now, here's a few numbers for you. MediaWorks, owners of radio stations and billboards, they lost $126 million last year. Warner Brothers Discovery New Zealand, owner of TV3, lost $34 million last year. Radio New Zealand, fully funded by the government, had an operating deficit of $739,000. Stuff, well, who knows? It was bought for a dollar over three years ago and, to my knowledge, has not published financial results since. TVNZ made a mere $1.7 million last financial year on revenue of $327 million. The only sort of bright spot was... NZME, owner of the New Zealand Herald and News Talk ZB, it made $22.7 million in net profit after tax. And all this in a time when the government has been seriously subsidising the industry through cash injections and fully priced advertising. But that's about to stop. So can the mainstream media survive? If so, how? Does the government have a vested interest in keeping the mainstream media viable? And if so, what will the government do about it? A man with a keen interest in all this is retired District Court Judge David Harvey. He's written extensively on this issue, and he is with me now. Uh, David, thank you for joining me. Those numbers are pretty depressing, aren't they? Why can't the media be like any other industry and just let the market decide its fate and let a few of them go out of business? Well, thank you, Peter. And those numbers are um, pretty concerning. And uh, from my perspective, um, if you can't survive in the market, um, then you don't deserve to be there. And really what is happening now is a necessity for um, media to adapt to changing circumstances. But the media, the media is very, very important, not from the government's point of view, although it's played quite an important role for the government uh, in recent times, but as part of the organisation of a democratic state, the news media has become, uh, over the centuries, very, very important. And the media isn't referred to as the fourth estate uh, just because it sounds nice. They play a very, very important role in uh, scrutinising the activities of other branches of the state, such as the government, such as cabinet, such as government departments, such as the courts. Uh, and uh, holding um, uh, up truth to power and speaking truth to power. And in that respect, very, very important indeed. If you don't have a vital, vibrant, independent media, how is it then that the public will be informed about the activities of the government? And it, without shining a light uh, that media does on government activity, uh, you can get an uncontrolled uh, government uh, that operates in secret. So the media is very, very important. The trouble is that uh, in recent times, there has been a perception 
that uh, the media is in back pocket uh, of the government, of a particular uh, government. And uh, public confidence in the media um, of all institutions of the state is the lowest. It's around about 60%. And that's a matter of concern. But what has been happening is that the state has provided uh, a considerable amount of funding, as you've said, for um, media, not only by way of uh, government advertising, but also by way of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, the $55 million, which has now come to an end, but the distributions are going to continue for a couple of years yet. Uh, in addition, uh, the state provided, and not a lot of people know this, a, a media support package in 2020 of $50 million. So um, you've got a total of something like about $105 million that has been poured by the state into the media. Uh, and um, although the, the news media like to uh, profess that they are indeed independent and that they haven't been bought and sold, from a public perception point of view, the optics is not good. And that's a matter of concern. Now, because the money's drying up and because the government can't directly put any funding into the media because there'll be the perception, the continued perception, that media is in the back pocket of the government, uh, a different approach has been developed. And that is uh, contained in the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, which was introduced into Parliament uh, in August of this year, just before the House rose. It got as far as its first reading and it has stalled. Now, given the uh, attitude of one of the coalition partners to the media who shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> but he leads New Zealand first. <laughs> uh, you, you may say that, Peter. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't like the media, and it may well be that um, uh, he will um, the, the, the fair uh, digital news bargaining bill won't go any further. But what it proposes uh, is interesting because instead of state subsidies of the media, the plan is that uh, the big internet-based platforms like Google and Facebook and, and various others will provide uh, a form of subsidization uh, for the media uh, that will allow them to um, uh, continue. You see, what, what happens is that with the development of, of the internet, um, digital platforms like Google act as content aggregators. They, they gather news information from a whole lot of sources and they provide access to it. An example is Google News. And it presents a continuous flow of links to articles uh, from a large number of publications and magazines and it doesn't pay a dime. And the same with Facebook. So basically what they are doing is that they are free riding on uh, other people's content, on news media's content, uh, and uh, clipping the ticket on the way because uh, they have advertising and so on and so forth with their platforms. That's how they make their money. And they are um, picking up a large uh, amount of funding uh, from advertisers that would probably otherwise be going towards mainstream media. And... What the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill says is, well, let's be fair about this. 
the big platforms should be paying some money to news media for the privilege of being able to use their content. And that, that's very, very broadly what, uh, what has been proposed. But that, that, that makes sense. I just have one basic question then. Why do those news aggregators, Google, Facebook, etc., how come they can essentially steal content? Don't we have a copyright law which is supposed to prevent that? Um, <laughs> yes and no. Um, copy, what, what, the what the aggregators do, for example, is that they pick up uh, what are referred to as snippets. If you do a Google search, you don't actually get the entire um, article when you do your search. You just get a, a, a snippet, a link to the article, and perhaps a brief summary or a couple of lines from the top. Now, <clears throat> that could qualify uh, in uh, copyright speak as a form of fair use. And um, the way that copyright law uh, works, as I understand it, is that there's no uh, copyright protection for the use of snippets uh, like that. So that's how they get, a, get away with it. What if if the um, if the government really wanted to think about this, um, changing the Copyright Act to include snippets as content uh, would mean that by incorporating snippets onto your site, you would be in breach of copyright unless you had paid a licensing fee to the owner of the material, and um, that that. That isn't the law as it stands at the moment, but that would be one way through it. Yeah, I think, though, that if you went down that particular path, you would run into all sorts of other issues, though, wouldn't you? And this is just going off on a tangent for a moment, uh, that, for instance, if I write an article and quote from another article, even if I attribute it, uh, there may be copyright issues even in that, even if I put it in quotation marks and say where it's come from. Uh, would that create fair use issues as well? No, it wouldn't, because that in itself would be fair use. Now, the, the, the generally up to about 10% um, of, of an article or, or of, a, of a piece of material uh, used in another context is seen as fair use. So if I, uh, if I quote uh, a portion of an article in something that I'm writing, as long as I don't quote the entire article... Uh, uh, and and rather just ten percent of it, uh, that is that is considered to be fair use uh, and not a not a copyright infringement. All right. Well, let's get back to this fair digital news bargaining bill, which is yeah. in front of the house at the moment. As I understand it, this is the government interfering in the business of the media and saying to the content aggregators, Google in particular, Facebook, uh, etc., that if you are going to take material from, say, the Herald or from stuff, you have to pay them for it. And if you're not prepared to pay for it, then we're going to put a mediator in the middle to decide what the price should be that you do pay, and this will be enforceable by law. Is that, in round terms, summarising what the Fair Digital News bargaining bill is about? The government is getting involved in a scheme to make the big internet players, the big internet platforms, pay the media companies. Yeah, very broad brush description and perfectly correct, Peter. That's exactly it. 
Um, what, what in fact would be happening is that the government is going to compel <clears throat> the platforms to subsidise um, news media organisations for the material that they use. And it's a, there's a, a stick and carrot approach. Um, uh, your, your, your platforms will be incentivized, if you can put it that way, by the threat of this compelled coercive action, um, which is not really incentivization at all. It's rather velvet glove compulsion. We'll, we'll uh, you know, <clears throat> go to mediation, but if you're not prepared to do as the mediator says and what we say uh, as the regulator, and there's always a regulator sitting in the background, the iron fist will come later on, and they have some pretty stringent penalties that have been suggested in the legislation as well. So is this the best way, do you believe, for the mainstream media, the, the current media companies, the current content creators, is this the best way for them to, to monetize in this new digital era? Well, um, look, I'll, I'll, roll the tape, I'll roll the tape back a little bit um, because what what we need to understand is just exactly what has happened. Um, the internet um, has been probably even more revolutionary in terms of information distribution than the printing press was back in the 14 and 1500s. Um, prior to the advent of the internet, you had monolithic news media structures. You had uh, television stations, you had radio stations, you had newspaper publishers, and they worked on a distribution system that was one to many. So, for example, NZME uh, publishes the Herald, and that's distributed to a number of, of subscribers. Uh, TVNZ broadcasts uh, One News from its studios, and that is transmitted to a number of viewers. So it's a one-to-many type of model. What happened with the internet was that that entire distribution system was turned upside down. And you have a many-to-many -many, uh, model. And the thing is that because the internet doesn't have a whole lot of red tape about who can set up a, a news media organization or a, an online uh, broadcast situation like um, uh, Reality Check Radio, uh, is that enterprising individuals can set up their own operation and can do what news media, uh, what mainstream news media is doing, uh, but using this sort of many-to-many -many, uh, type of model of distribution. And that is an enormous challenge for uh, mainstream media um, because basically it cuts the ground out from underneath their business model. And... Uh, in some respects, uh, some of the mainstream outfits have adapted, but only partially. Uh, for example, uh, NZME, or the New Zealand Herald or whatever, has uh, its website, which it touts as being the website of the year and so on and so forth. But from my point of view, it's a ghastly place um, and, and difficult to navigate and, and frustrating and, and a whole lot of uh, difficulties as well. But what they've said is, okay, we'll put uh, some of our content up online uh, and we will imitate, if you like, what we are doing in print uh, or maybe adapt it slightly. Uh, but basically the model remains the same. They are a centralised distributor and they are distributing to a whole lot of other people. Now, 
what the difficulty is, is that there's not been a complete understanding uh, on the part of mainstream media, and I'm including uh, television, radio, uh, as well as newspapers, in exactly what goes on uh, with the internet and some of the underlying qualities uh, that um, mean that the internet paradigmatically changes the information environment. And what, in fact, the bill is uh, attempting to do is to say, we want to stabilise the business model that you have and provide some kind of funding for you so that you can continue uh, operating as you have done in the past so that you don't need to adapt. Or if you do, if you are going to adapt, you only need to adapt slightly. And so what we are going to do, the state, the government, is appoint an independent regulator. Now, independent regulators are much beloved of the Arden Hipkins government. Many of the proposals for changes uh, in broadcasting and um, communications and information distribution have involved an independent regulator. That very phrase, though, David, is almost oxymoronic, isn't it? How can you have an independent regulator? It's basically a government-approved regulator, isn't it? Of course it is. What... Interestingly enough, you only need if you read the annual reports of the Broadcasting Standards Authority from say 2017 up to present. The language, the change in language um, in those uh, reports is is quite phenomenal uh, in terms of of the emphasis that the words have and so on and so forth. The Broadcasting Standards Authority touts itself as being independent. Excuse me. Uh, there's an awful lot of buy-in to the sort of uh, the government line, if I can put it that way, or the government line as it was then. I don't know if it'll be the new government line, but we shall see. And we shall see whether or not the future reports of the Broadcasting Standards Authority adapt again. Um, But then, you know, the bureaucracy is renowned for its adaptation to change. Um, uh, they can swim with the sharks as well as the fish, and um, uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. But independent regulator, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> Parliament right. will Parliament will tell the independent regulator what their powers will be, uh, and and that'll be the law. And the independent regulator will have to abide by the law. They won't be as independent uh, as. For example, uh, a judicial officer, uh, because and judicial independence is something that's fiercely guarded. Of course. So you've described in some of your writing about this fair digital news bargaining bill, you've you've described it as a state endorsed scheme to prop up and subsidise the mainstream media. Now, frankly, subsidies never work well in any industry, as we've already discussed, as we've seen in numerous industries in this country over time. Uh, The motor car assembly industry, for one, the farming industry in the 80s, for another. So I come back to my question of, of earlier in this discussion. Why don't we just let the market take care of everything? Sure, we've got to have a strong questioning media, but... If a few of these big guys fall over and we're left with a whole lot of smaller, yappy-type, independent, internet-based media organisations, what is the problem? 
Okay, uh, two things. Just to go back to the to the subsidisation issue, there, I can't remember who it was who said those whom they wish to control they first make dependent. So, <laughs> yes. um, so um, that that explains po- possibly one way of looking at, at the subsidy thing. The second thing is that uh, even um, the, the the press uh, arm of mainstream media. Um, has a, a a regulatory body, but it used to be the press council. It is now the New Zealand uh, Media Standards Authority, and that is um, a voluntary organisation. Uh, all of the uh, main uh, print media uh, people uh, belong to it. Also, some of the online media people belong to it. Some bloggers even belong to it. And they are subject to the uh, code that the New Zealand Media Council has set up. And so there is a a form of regulation. Now, the New Zealand Media Council can't um, sort of shut anybody down or anything like that, but their um, decisions uh, do carry weight. So if you have strayed outside the standards and somebody complains and the complaint is upheld, um, then that doesn't look good. And the Media Council uh, makes a point. It's very, very transparent. Uh, It makes a point of publishing all of its decisions. Now, you've got that sort of, that that voluntary uh, type of approach, a voluntary type of regulation. But as far as other organisations are concerned, for example, uh, Reality Check Radio, uh, because you don't, because Reality Check Radio doesn't fall within the definition of broadcasting that's contained in the Broadcasting Act, Reality Check is not subject to the Broadcasting Standards Authority, and this is the problem. Um, If you are going to have a news media organisation, there has to be some kind of oversight into what is going on uh, to maintain the integrity of the message. Otherwise, um, somebody could uh, pour um, a a truckload of money into an operation such as the dire counterspin media, uh, and that becomes the sort of established message. And, um, I mean, counterspin is perfectly entitled to uh, freedom of expression along with everybody else. But I don't know that a lot of people would be too enthusiastic about uh, having counterspin as your main source of news in place of the New Zealand Herald. So, <laughs> but but David, there are people the, in other places the around the world is- who'll say that Rupert Murdoch has done that exact thing that you've just been talking about in yeah. in America and Britain, and of course originally in Australia. He sure did, and. In many respects, he too was subject to to media councils and and, um, regulatory oversight and so on and so forth, along with... uh, 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 But, of course, with Murdoch, he was so big and so powerful that it didn't matter. I mean, look at Fox News. Um, The only thing about Fox News uh, was that previously um, the Federal Communications Commission prior to setting up Fox News, had a uh, standard of balance uh, in terms of journalism. And during the Reagan years, uh, they got rid of that standard of balance. And that was when Roger Isles um, became the CEO of Fox News and they shifted 
massively. Mm. Um, the juggernaut the right. started, didn't it? Oh, oh, absolutely. But you see, the thing is that in many respects, <clears throat> uh, even Murdoch um, is subject to market forces. And an example is the news of the world. He shut it down. He had to shut it down. It had just gone off pissed so much, so far, that they could no longer survive. Uh, they had lost all credibility in the marketplace. Nobody took any notice of the news of the world. Their ethics and standards were in tatters. They folded. Right. So what you're saying is that the market took care of it in the end. So that's the. <laughs> That's the yep. essence that I come back to. Sure, there was a regulator involved and there were parliamentary in inquiries into what the news of the mm -hmm. world was up to with the, the phone tapping, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But in the end, it was the market that took care of it. But do you believe we still have to have some kind of regulatory involvement uh, even in these times of independent, internet-based media starting up? If, if there is regulate to be regulation, and, and that's a big if, because like you, I, I would favour probably a market-based solution. But if there is to be a regulatory involvement, it should be light-handed. And uh, the light-handed approach is that that is adopted by the New Zealand Media Council. Um, and, and I think, frankly, I think that's an excellent model. Um, it, it, it is recognised, it has integrity. Um, if it upholds complaints, then the news media gets angry at it. If it upholds the news media, then the complainants get angry at it. When uh, when that happens, you know, you're doing the right thing somewhere along the line. And uh, so if there is to be that type of regulation, it's to be light-handed. But this fair uh, news, um, fair digital news bargaining bill is anything but light-handed. It is very heavy-handed. Um, my, own, my own view is uh, we don't need this particular model uh, of, of regulation and redistribution of, of money uh, to prop up news media and to subsidise news media when we have um, copyright options. Now, in the cabinet paper that um, developed the proposal for the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, they looked at an EU directive on copyright law. Now, of course, they were looking in entirely the wrong direction because the EU approach to copyright law is quite different from ours. And they said, no, 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 copyright isn't going to work. But that completely overlooked the provisions of part of our Copyright Act, which provides for copyright licensing schemes. And that's been in existence for some time. And it would the copyright uh, approach would remove this, any state involvement from the equation because all they need to do is um, provide protection, copyright protection for those little snippets and so on that we talked about before. And that means that if, new, if uh, platforms wanted to aggregate content, they would have to get a license and they would have to pay for the license. And this model um, has been in place for some time. And I was involved in a decision back in 2005 where uh, copies of newspaper articles were being uh, distributed uh, by an organisation that didn't have a licence. And the question was whether or not uh, they should be paying a licence fee for that distribution. And, and, it was, uh, and, and the complaint was upheld. 
Um, it, it was print and, and digital copies of newspaper uh, articles, and it was the full article rather than the snippet. But if you get the snippet uh, with some kind of copyright protection, then it falls under the licensing scheme. And if Google and Facebook and so on and so forth want to use uh, snippets or part of the article or whatever uh, for the purposes of aggregation, and would have to be a careful definition, um, uh, then there would be a licensing fee payable and the funds would still flow. But it wouldn't involve the government. I mean, apart from enabling uh, copyright protection, it would be a privately run scheme. So do you believe that system is both practical and enforceable? I mean, we're talking about very, very big multinational corporations here. If Google yeah, started nicking a bit of stuff from stuff or from the New Zealand Herald, and they decided they didn't want to pay, even if there had been a decision made in a New Zealand court that they had yeah. to pay, uh, how can that be enforced? Can't Google and Facebook, because they're headquartered wherever, just tell the New Zealand courts to naff off? They've got a face, Google and Facebook have a New Zealand presence. Um, uh, they've, they've got offices here in, in New Zealand, uh, and uh, they could be brought to heel uh, in, in enforcement terms um, in that way. But the important thing about Google and Facebook is that even although they, they love using other people's stuff, um, they also want to be seen as good corporate citizens. Uh, and comply with the law. For example, in a, in a completely different area, uh, like uh, harmful digital communications that may, may, may be broadcast from a Facebook platform or something like that, um, Facebook can be very, very cooperative in taking material down in, in certain circumstances, not because a New Zealand court orders them to, but because it makes them look good. Um, the threat of court proceedings is is always um, uh, something of last resort, but um, uh, I, I, you're dealing with, with huge organisations, yes, who've got very, very deep pockets, true, but who nevertheless want to look as though they're doing the right thing. All right. So what's, that, yeah. what's the experience then in, in uh, other countries? David, because well, I know that we have something up and running in Australia, and I believe there's also a, some sort of scheme going in Canada as well, isn't there? There is. Uh, in Canada and, and in, um, in Australia, they have it, and I understand a similar sort of proposal is currently being uh, put together in the UK uh, along with Europe. But um, the thing is, though, that in some respects, it may be shutting the door after the horse has bolted because Facebook, for example, has decided that it's going to move out of the news uh, aggregation uh, and circulation business. So basically, they're saying, no, we're not going to play this particular, we're not going to play this game. Um, uh, I don't think it's because of um, uh, sort of subsidy arrangements or anything like that. There may be all sorts of other business reasons. But I would imagine that... Um, subsidising mainstream media would be part of their decision-making process. So it, it may well be that if something like this were to come to pass, um, uh, Google and Facebook would say, right, we get, we're getting out of the news business, we're not going to have anything more to do with it, uh, and then where would news media be? And it wouldn't be a question of somebody free-riding on their stuff. They are still using that old... <laughs> 
out-of-date distribution model that doesn't work anymore and that is still resulting in those enormous losses that you referred to at the opening of this um, discussion. All right. So with those big companies, and in New Zealand there's, what, five or six of them and, and a couple of them are government-owned, although I know that uh, I noticed that uh, there is... There have been calls for TVNZ to be half sold in in recent days. Uh, RNZ is always yep. going to remain fully government owned, but we've got MediaWorks, we've got Warner Brothers Discovery, we've got uh, NZME, we've got stuff. So four relatively large companies, all shall we say marginal businesses at the moment, is one of them at least one of them likely to go under at some stage, do you see, or at least be split up to to try and have the viable parts of those businesses uh, be be operating? Oh, I think so. I, I, I think um, one in particular is very, very fragile. Which one's that? Stuff. Very, very fragile indeed. Um, yeah, the, the, the word on the street, um, and, and I haven't got any figures to back this up, so it's just it is very much an impression. But I would say that that stuff has got some difficulties. Well, the fact that it's been in the ownership of uh, its managing editor Sinead Bowser for what three years now, and as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, there's never been any financial information about uh, the company published at any stage in the last three years, which is extraordinary right. because isn't every company in New Zealand required to return their accounts uh, annually? Uh, if they're a public company, yeah. Um, but even... I, I but, but, but even... I couldn't comment enough, Yeah, MediaWorks. MediaWorks was uh, being... Um, castigated for being late with its financial returns. I mean, the company's office has got to get information, doesn't it? And, and doesn't the information then be published with the company's office? Oh, you've got to file returns with the company's office, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we just don't know anything about stuff. So when you look no. at uh, the incoming government, uh, David, do you have any hint as to what they might do with this fair digital news bargaining bill, which is... Uh, uh, but it's, it's been through its first reading. It's it's sitting in in, in the house. It's um, it's on the order paper. What do you believe may happen to it? I don't think that it's very high on the list of priorities. I think there are other things that that may take uh, precedence over something like this. And as I said before, um, it it may well be that um, certain people in in government might uh, want to uh, poke a stick in the eye of of news media. Uh, who knows? I mean, you may remember some nasty things that um, Peter's had, um, and uh, yeah, it was um, it was pretty serious stuff. So whether or not there's there's going to be a follow through on something like that has yet to be seen. All right, David, thank you so much for this uh, intriguing, wide-ranging discussion. Uh, it's an industry that I've worked in for half a century. I know it's one that uh, you have followed closely as well. You've been a performer on mainstream media. You've lectured and taught internet law. So it's, uh, it's, it is a, a, a matter of great interest to all New Zealanders, but uh, we live... We continue to live in very uncertain times regarding the New Zealand media. Nice talking to you about this fascinating subject, David. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure to be with you. Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members.